Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired their personal trainer as a caterer. All right, folks, let's keep this line moving. You there with the tongs. Picking up one Dutch's potato at a time will not cut it at my catering table. Drop and give me 50. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Okay, this is what we call the wild mushroom and asparagus dip, dip, and press. Come on, let's get those plates above your heads. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today. We're going to be learning in Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, the first piece in Hilchos Trumos is on the Rambam, Perak Aleph Halacha Yud. And this is Rab Chaim's first piece in the book of Zroim in the Rambam, which deals with the Halachos that are related to land. So Rab Chaim's going to touch on one of the themes that will occupy him throughout his pieces on the book of Zroim in Hilchos Trumos and Hilchos Bikurim and Hilchos Shemitah. And that is the distinction between the obligation of Truma and Shemitah when it comes to the majority of the Jewish people living in Eretz Yisrael. Now, Rab Chaim's specific focus in this piece is on the principle in Halacha of Ein Kinyan L'Nochri Be'Eretz Yisrael, that a non-Jew does not have halachic ownership of the land of Israel in order to absolve the produce from his farm, from his portion of the land, from Trumos and Maestros. The Rambam writes, If a non-Jew purchases land in Eretz Yisrael, he does not remove it from the obligation of the mitzvos to take truma and meiser on the produce. Rather, the land remains in its original sanctity. Based on this, the Rambam continues, If a Jew goes ahead and buys back the land from this non-Jew, it does not not have the halachic status of kibush yachid, the conquering of individuals. When the Jewish people as a whole formally conquer land, it's called kibush rabim. But when individuals go ahead and conquer land, so that's called kibush yachid, and the produce grown in those lands is not obligated, according to the Torah, in Truma and Meiser. But in this case, says the Rambam, since the Jew who bought back from the non-Jew is not considered kibush yachid. The land was sanctified throughout the entire time that the non-Jew owned it. So in this case, mafresh trumos and meisers may be ha-Torah. This land is obligated in truma and meiser mida oraisa. And then the Rambam differentiates this from Surya, the Syria region, which was a kibush yachid through David Amelech. So there, if a non-Jew acquires land, it would exempt the land entirely from the obligation of Meiser. And the Rambam has the same formulation in Hilchus Bikurim, Perak Beis, Halacha Tesavav. He says, If someone sells their land to a non-Jew and then they go and buy it back, so they have to bring Bikurim Min HaTorah, the Bikurim Ardoraisa, Lefisha'ena Nifkas Min HaMitzvos Bekinyan HaNachri, because the land was not exempt from mitzvos while it was owned by a non-Jew. Now the Raivid in Hilchus Bikurim has a brief and unclear comment, and he says, Even though the produce bloomed under the ownership of the non-Jew. So it's not clear what the Raivid is coming to do here. Rab Chaim says that there's two options. Approach number one is that the Raivid is agreeing with the Rambam. He's simply clarifying what the Rambam said. Because the Rambam in Hilchos Bikurim didn't say explicitly that even if the produce bloomed in the ownership of the non-Jew, you have to bring Bikurim. He does say that in Hilchos Trumos, in Parak Aleph, Halacha Yud Aleph, the next Halacha 
from the one we read before, where the Rambam says, If the produce grew under the ownership of the non-Jew, and then a Jew buys them after the produce was picked, but before it was completed, the Gomran Yisrael, and he goes ahead and completes the produce, then they're obligated in all of the gifts, Mida Oraisa. And this is based on the Gemara and Gitin and Mem Zayin, that the principle of Ein Kinyan Lenachri Beretz Yisrael, that a non-Jew does not have halachic ownership over the land of Eretz Yisrael, applies both to the land itself, that the non-Jew's ownership does not change the status of the land, and it also applies to the fruits which grow on that land. So the Rambam himself says this clearly, that the fruits which grow under the ownership of the non-Jew have the same halachic status as any other fruits, but he only said it in Hilchos Trumos, therefore the Raivid is pointing it out also in Hilchos Bikurim, but the Rambam would also agree to this statement. So according to approach number one, there is no debate between the Rambam and the Raivid. But, says Rab Chaim, there's another way to understand what the Ravid's saying, and in approach number two, he is disagreeing with the Rambam. The Rambam holds that the whole reason why a Jew who buys back land in Eretz Yisrael from a non-Jew has to bring Truma and Meiser Mido Raisa is based on the principle of Ein Kinyel Nachri Eretz Yisrael. But if we would say that a non-Jew does have ownership of the land of Eretz Yisrael, there is another position in the Gemara which the Rambam does not hold like, but there is a position that Yesh Kinyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael, a non-Jew, could have halachic ownership of Eretz Yisrael. So based on that position, the way the Rambam presents this halacha, if a Jew goes ahead and buys the land back from the non-Jew, he would not be obligated in Truma and Meiser Mida Oraisa because it would have the halachic status of Kibush Yachid. So this is a very big chiddish in the Rambam's presentation that the position of Yesh Kinyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael means that the land is literally removed from being part of Eretz Yisrael, and a Jew who buys it back is now reconquering it. So this was the Ravid's big problem, and he argues on the Rambam that the principle of Yesh Kinyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael, a non-Jew could own land in Eretz Yisrael, is a very limited concept in Halacha, which says that produce which grew under the ownership of a non-Jew would not be obligated in Truma and Meiser, because the Torah describes it as the Gancha, your produce, and not the Gan of a Nachri. And also for Bikurim, it says Admascha, your land, below Admas Nachri, that's in the Gemara and Babasra and Afpe Aleph. So there's very specific Gzeras HaKosuvs, things we learn out from the Torah's formulation, which indicate that when a non Jew has a farm in Eretz Yisrael, you're not obligated to take Truma and Meiser and Bikurim from the produce that grows under his ownership. But the concept that that removes the land entirely from being the status of land of Eretz Yisrael is not part of the equation, according to the Ravid. So that is the Ravid's big argument with the Rambam. The Rambam holds that the issue of whether Yesh Kinyan Lenachri or Ein Kinyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael, whether a non-Jew has halachic ownership over Eretz Yisrael land, is a very broad issue. It encompasses whether or not this land is considered to be part of Eretz Yisrael while the non-Jew owns it. And obviously that's going to affect whether the produce which grows is obligated in Truma and Meister and Bikurim because if it's no longer land of Eretz Yisrael, then you no longer have to give Truma and Meister and Bikurim from it. The Raivit, on the other hand, says that it's a much more limited issue and that is if a non-Jew has ownership rights in Eretz Yisrael, then the produce that grows during his ownership 
is not obligated in Truma and Meiser and Bikurim because the Torah formulates those obligations as being special to land which is owned by a Jew or produce which comes from a Jew's land. But it has nothing to do with whether or not this land is part of Eretz Yisrael. That's a given. Of course, the land retains its status as being part of Eretz Yisrael, regardless of whether or not a non-Jew has halachic ownership of it. Now, having found this very unusual concept in the Rambam, because the simple reading of the issue, whether a Nachri could own Eretz Yisrael or not, is exactly like the Ravid said, that it's a limited application to whether or not you have to take Truma and Meister and Bikurim. But uh, having discovered this very unusual reading in the Rambam, that it has to do with whether or not the land has the status of Eretz Yisrael, so now Rab Chaim asks that this doesn't seem to fit into the reading of the Gemara in Gitin and Daf Mem Zayin, where it discusses these issues, because the Gemara there asks on the position that Ein Kinyan Lenochri Eretz Yisrael, that a non-Jew cannot have ownership of land of Eretz Yisrael. So the Gemara asks from Abraisa, which says, Yisrael Shalakach Sodami Nochri Shlish, if a Jew bought a field from a non-Jew before the fruit had grown a third and then it grew a third under the ownership of the Jew, so when it grows a third is when it becomes obligated in Miser, and then he sold the field back to the non-Jew, so the Brisa says that this produce would be chayiv in Miser, shikvar nischayva, because at the moment when it grew a third and it became obligated in Miser, it was under the ownership of the Jew. So the Gemara says that the Brisa indicates only in that case where a Jew owned the field when it grew a third is it obligated in Meiser. But if the non-Jew had owned it throughout the entire period, then it would be exempt from Meiser because at the moment when it grew a third, it was owned by the non-Jew. So that indicates very clearly that a non-Jew can own land in Eretz Yisrael and absolve it from Truma and Meiser. But Rab Chaim points out that according to the Rambam's approach, this Gemara does not seem to hold together because the Gemara is saying that according to the position that Yesh King Lenochri Baritz Yisrael, then the Brisa would make sense. But according to the Rambam, even if you hold Yesh King Lenochri Baritz Yisrael, the Brisa is still problematic. Because if you hold Yesh Kinyan Lenochri Baritz Yisrael, that means that once a non-Jew buys land of Eretz Yisrael, it's totally removed from the status of being part of Eretz Yisrael, even if a Jew buys it back. So in the case of the Brisa, where the Jew bought the produce back and then it grew a third, it's still absolved from Meiser. So why does the Brisa say that it's obligated in Meiser? According to the position of Yesh Kinyan Lenochri Baritz Yisrael, a Jew buying the land back is kibush yachid, and it will not obligate this produce in Meiser. Secondly, Rab Chaim asks on the Rambam that the Gemara says, according to the position Yesh Kinyan Lenochri, that you don't have to take Truma and Meiser and Bikurim from land owned by a non-Jew because we learn it out from the Psukim of Degon Cha, your Dagon, not a non-Jew's Dagon, or Ad Mascha, your land, not a non-Jew's land. So this Psukim which indicate that non-Jew's produce are not obligated in these gifts. But according to the Rambam, that the land which is owned by a non-Jew no longer has the status of Eretz Yisrael, why do we need Psukim to teach us that you're not obligated in the gifts. Any land which has the status of chutzla aretz is obviously not obligated in the gifts. We don't need any psukim to teach us that. 
So the fact that the Gemara says we learn out from the Psukim, the way they formulate the obligation of Truma, Meiser, and Bikurim, that it only applies when a Jew owns it, that indicates very clearly, like the Ravid said, that the land is still Eretz Yisrael land. It's not considered like Chutzla Eretz land, but it has a special exemption from Truma and Meiser and Bikurim based on the way the Torah formulated those mitzvahs. So to answer these two questions, Rab Chaim asks a rhetorical question, which is where did the Rambam get this whole approach? The Gemara only says that land which is owned by a non-Jew is exempt from Truma and Meiser and Bikurim. But where did the Rambam see in the Psukim or in the Gemara any indication that the land loses its status of being part of Eretz Yisrael? So Rab Chaim explains that when the Gemara interprets the word digancha as a Jew's grain and not a non-Jew's grain, that means something more than just grain which grows under the non-Jew's ownership is exempt from Meiser. It means that the land itself which is owned by a non-Jew, is removed from having the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael land. And the proof for this is because the Mishnah in Demai in Perek Vav talks about somebody who's cholcha sadam in hanachri, they rent a land from a non-Jew to work it. So the Mishnah says before they give the non-Jew his share of the produce, they have to take off Meister. And Rabbi Yehuda adds that even if it's his ancestral field that was owned by his family, still he has to take off the meiser before giving it to the non-Jew. So in this case, very clearly, even though the non-Jew owns the land, there's still an obligation of meiser. So the Gemara of Metziah and Afkuf Aleph says that this is based on the position of Ein Kenyan that a non-Jew cannot halachically own land in Eretz Yisrael. So Rab Chaim points out that this is an unusual case because in this case, the land is owned by the non-Jew, but the produce is owned by the Jew. And still the Gemara is saying that if you hold Yesh Kinyan Lenachri Baratz Yisrael, that would exempt this produce from Meiser, even though the produce is entirely the Jews' produce. So this is proof for the Rambam's approach that the issue of whether or not a non-Jew could own land in Eretz Yisrael is not on the produce itself, because in this case, the produce is owned by a Jew, so it's not in the category of a non-Jew's produce. Rather, the halacha of Yesh Kenyan is about the land itself, that if a non-Jew owns the land, then it loses its sanctity of Eretz Yisrael, and that's why any produce which grows on it, even though it's a Jew's produce, would still be exempt from Meiser. So the fact that the Gemara applies the principle of Ein Kenyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael to a case where the land is owned by a non-Jew and the produce is owned by a Jew indicates that that principle is talking about the land itself and not the produce. So that's where the Rambam derived his approach that according to the position Yesh Kenyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael it means that the land itself loses the status of Eretz Yisrael and is now considered Land. But still, says Rab Chaim, there's a problem because if we think about this more carefully, you see that the whole basis of this concept is that the Torah said you're only obligated to bring Truma and Meiser and Bikurim from a Jew's grain and a Jew's land. So that means that when we say a non-Jew's ownership of the land of Israel removes it from being part of Eretz Yisrael, it means with regard to those limited halachas, the land loses its status of being obligated in Truma and Meiser and Bikurim. 
But the Rambam expands this concept considerably, and he implies that the land would lose entirely its status of being part of Eretz Yisrael and having the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael, well beyond the limited relevant halachas of gifts that you have to give from the produce. Such so that the Rambam says that a Jew buying the land back would be like conquering it all over again. So where did the Rambam see this extension of the whole concept to include that it has to be recaptured for Eretz Yisrael and not just that it's exempt from Truma, Meisner, and Bikurim, which is all the Gemara seems to apply it to? So in order to explain the Rambam's approach to these halachas, Rab Chaim has a very important explanation of the Gemara in Gitin and Daf Mem Zayin. There's a debate between Rabbah and Rebbe Elazar. Rabbah holds that Ein Kinyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael and non-Jews ownership of Eretz Yisrael does not exempt the produce from Meiser. But Yesh Kinyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael Lachpor Baboros Shichanu Ma'aros. A non-Jew does have ownership over the land of Israel in order to dig wells and pit. Meaning, according to Rabbah, there's a distinction that even though a non-Jew does not have halachic ownership over Eretz Yisrael land, that's only with regard to the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael and the obligation of taking the gifts from the produce which grows on that land. But when it comes to the financial ownership of the land, that a non-Jew does have, and they can use it however they want. They can dig pits, they can dig whatever they want in that land because financially it belongs to them. Rabbi Elazar seems to say the opposite. He says that Yesh Kinyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael, a non-Jew does have ownership over Eretz Yisrael land, that there is no obligation of miser from the produce he grows in his field, but he is not allowed to dig pits and wells in his land. So Rabbi Elazar seems to hold that even though a non-Jew could own land of Israel with regard to the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael, and you would not be obligated in miser, but the financial ownership of Eretz Yisrael, the non-Jew cannot own, to use it however they want. So there seems to be a polar opposite debate here that Rabbah holds a non-Jew can own it financially, but not in terms of the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. And Rabbi Elazar holds that they can own it with regard to the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, but not financially. But Rab Chaim says that it's difficult to read Rabbi Elazar that way because it's hard to imagine that it's easier for a non-Jew to own Eretz Yisrael in terms of the mitzvos and the sanctity of the land more than he's able to own the land financially. So instead, Rab Chaim proposes a very brilliant approach to how to understand the Gemara and the debate between Rabbah and Rabbi Elazar, which will make sense of all this. He explains that when Rabbah says, he means that a non-Jew has no ability to interfere with the Kedushas Eretz Yisrael, regardless of whether he owns the land, regardless of whether he owns the produce. No matter what, it's irrelevant. The sanctity of Eretz Yisrael overrides the ownership of the non-Jew, and the produce which grows on this land is going to be obligated in Truma and Meiser. But financially, the non-Jew is able to have ownership of the land of Israel. And that applies not only to the produce which grows, which of course he can buy and own, but even the land itself he has ownership of. And that's why he's able to use it however he wants to dig whatever he wants. So according to Rabbah, the main distinction is that when it comes to Kedushas Eretz Yisrael, a non-Jew's ownership is irrelevant, but financially a non-Jew can have full 100% ownership both on the produce and on the land. 
Rebbe Elazar has a different distinction. He distinguishes between the land and the produce. So Rebbe Elazar holds that when it comes to land, a non-Jew has no ownership over Israel land whatsoever, not with regard to the sanctity of the land, and also not financially. That's why he can't dig whatever he wants in that land. But when it comes to the produce, the non-Jew has full ownership that not only is it his financially, but also he can remove the sanctity of that produce and it's no longer obligated in Meiser. So both Rabbah and Rebbe Elazar agree that a non-Jew has some ownership over Israel land, but there are limitations. The question is, how do you distinguish it? Rabbah's main distinction is between things which are relevant to the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael, where the non-Jew has no rights, versus financially, where the non-Jew has full 100% rights, whereas Rebbe Elazar has a different distinction between the land where the non-Jew has no rights, not even financial, versus the produce where the non-Jew has full 100% rights, even with regard to whether the produce is sanctified. Now, the benefit of this approach for the Rambam is that according to Rabbi Elazar, who holds Yesh Kenyan L'Nachri Baratz Yisrael, there is no difference between Kedusha and financial. In both cases, the halacha is the same, that a non-Jew can own the produce, but he cannot own the land itself. So the position of Yesh Kenyan L'Nachri Baratz Yisrael is going to have nothing to do with the ownership of the land itself. So based on that, says Rab Chaim, the question he asked before from the Gemara and Gitin is going to make perfect sense because the question was that the Brisa says clearly that if a Jew buys land back from a non-Jew, it's obligated in Meiser. And the Gemara says that that fits perfectly with the position of Yesh Kinyan the Nachri Baratz Yisrael. Now, according to Rebbe Elazar, that does fit perfectly because Rebbe Elazar holds that a non-Jew can never own the land of Eretz Yisrael itself, not even financially, certainly not with regard to its sanctity. So it's going to be true that according to Rebbe Elazar, it makes perfect sense that if a Jew buys the land back from a non-Jew, it's certainly obligated in Meiser. The non-Jew's ownership would not have affected the status of the land in any way. Now, if there were to be another position that we don't currently have in the Gemara, which would hold Yesh Kinyan L'Nachri Baratz Yisrael, also applies to the actual ownership of the land, then it's true we would have a valid question, how does this Brisa fit into that position? But that's a theoretical position. This is not a question on Rebbe Elazar because he does not hold that Yesh Kinyan L'Nachri Baratz Yisrael applies to the actual land. It only applies to the produce. So that's why the Brisa makes perfect sense. Meaning the straw man idea of Yesh Kinyan L'Nachri Baratz Yisrael, that it would completely remove the land from being part of Eretz Yisrael, is just a theoretical position. But the actual Amora in the Gemara, Rabbi Elazar, who holds Yesh Kinyan L'Nachri Baratz Yisrael, he does not apply that to the actual ownership of the land. So he is not going to hold that land which is bought by a non-Jew is removed from its status of being part of Eretz Yisrael. So that's why the Brisa is going to make perfect sense according to Rabbi Elazar. Now, practically, Lahalacha, we follow the other opinion of Rabbah that Ein Kinyan L'Nachri Baratz Yisrael and according to Rabbah, there is no distinction between the produce and the land. In both cases, 
the non-Jew has no ability to remove them from the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael because the Pasuk says, Kiliha Eretz, Hashem owns the whole land. So the non-Jew cannot remove the produce or the land from being part of Eretz Yisrael. But that's all with regard to the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. When it comes to the financial ownership of Eretz Yisrael, then the non-Jew does own it. So that's why the Rambam, when he's recording the Halacha, which follows Rabbah, he does point out that both the land and the produce are considered sanctified like Eretz Yisrael because of Ein Kinyin Lenachri Eretz Yisrael. Because according to Rabbah, who doesn't distinguish between the land and the produce, if you would say Yesh Kinyin Lenachri Eretz Yisrael, so then it would mean that the land is removed from being part of Eretz Yisrael. But this is unique to Rabbah's lack of distinguishing between the land and the produce the way Rabbi Elazar does. So that's why it is correct for the Rambam to codify the halacha and to say that all of this, both the land and the produce, is dependent on the principle of Ein Kinyin Lenachri Baruch Yisrael. So basically, there's two different approaches as to why when a non-Jew buys land in Israel, it doesn't lose its status of being part of Eretz Yisrael. One is Rebbe Elazar's approach, which is that a non-Jew can never have ownership in land of Eretz Yisrael. And the second one is Rabbah's approach, that a non-Jew can never alter the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael. So the Rambam who rules like Rabbah, he records that second approach to the whole issue. And finally, this answers Rab Chaim's question, why do we need a special Pasuk to tell us the Gancha and Admascha to exclude that the produce of a non-Jew is exempt from Truma and Meiser? So the reason is because everybody, both Rabbi Elazar and Rabbah, everyone agrees that the land which is owned by a non-Jew does not lose the status of being Eretz Yisrael. It's not considered Chutz Aretz. So that's why we need a special Pasuk here to teach us that it's not obligated in Truma and Meiser and Bikurim according to Rabbi Elazar. And additionally, this is the source for Rabbi Elazar's whole view that when a non-Jew owns the produce, it affects it and it removes the sanctity from it. So according to Rab Chaim's approach and his reading of this Gemara, this would answer all of the questions that he had asked on the Rambam's approach earlier. Now Rab Chaim takes a step back and he says that to understand the whole concept that the Rambam created here, that a non-Jew buying land in Eretz Yisrael could remove the status of it being part of Eretz Yisrael and make it like Chutzla Eretz, which we don't find anywhere in Halacha. And even though this is a straw man idea in the Rambam, because we explained that both Rabbah and Rabbi Elazar reject it, but still, how do we understand the whole notion that this would be possible? So Rab Chaim explains in broad terms that the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael comes from the inheritance of the Jewish people. Based on the Gemara in Yevamos and Daf Pebez and in Erech and Daf Lamed Beis, that the Pasuk of Asher Yarshua Vosech of Yerishta, that the inheritance of your ancestors that you will inherit... So the Gemara says, that refers to the first and second conquerings and sanctifying of Eretz Yisrael that the Jewish people did. So you see that the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael comes about when the Jewish people inherit the land of their ancestors. And Rab Chaim points out that even though the word Yerusha, which generally means inheritance, in that context, in that verse, it refers to the sanctification of Eretz Yisrael, that the Jewish people capture it. But still, the sanctification comes about through the inheritance of their ancestral land. 
And that is the essence of Eretz Yisrael and the sanctification of it, that this is the Jewish people's land of their ancestors. And that's why it uses the phrase of Yerusha in that context. So the Rambam holds that this concept applies for all time. That for the sanctification of the land of Eretz Yisrael, it always has to be continuously part of the inheritance of the Jewish people. So that's why the Rambam has the notion that if a non-Jew buys land in Eretz Yisrael, it could remove that land from being part of Eretz Yisrael and make it Chutz La'aretz. Because once the non-Jew breaks that cycle of the inheritance of the Jewish people, then it would remove that land from being sanctified. So that's why the Rambam explains to us why a non-Jew's acquisition of the land of Israel would not affect the status of the land of Israel because in Kenyan Lanachri Eretz Yisrael, so he can't break that inheritance cycle and it's still considered part of the Yerusha, the inheritance of the Jewish people. That's why it's still sanctified like Eretz Yisrael. But the key point for the Rambam is that there has to be a continuous inheritance of the Jewish people in order for Eretz Yisrael to be sanctified. Now, the Ravid disagrees with the Rambam, and Rab Chaim explains his approach is that even though originally to sanctify the land of Israel, it had to be Yerusha, it had to be an inheritance of the Jewish people, but once the land is sanctified, then it, you don't have to continuously have it be an inheritance. It's already sanctified, and even if a non-Jew would buy it, that would not affect its being part of Eretz Yisrael. That's the first approach. And another way to formulate the Ravid is that even if he agrees with the Rambam, that you need to have a continuous inheritance of the Jewish people, but the Ravid holds that a non-Jew buying the land is not going to disrupt that inheritance process because the inheritance process does not depend on who bought the land. They're two separate equations. And the land which is sanctified, which is part of the Jewish people's overall inheritance, remains their inheritance even when a non-Jew bought a piece of it. So according to this approach, the Ravid agrees with the Rambam that it has to be a continuous inheritance to the Jewish people, but he just holds that a non-Jew buying the land does not disrupt that. And then Rab Chaim ends this very long second paragraph by pointing out that the whole discussion so far is according to the second way of reading the Ravid's comment on the Rambam, that he's arguing with him. But as Rab Chaim began this whole piece, there's another way to read the Ravid's comment on the Rambam that he's not disagreeing with him. He's simply adding and clarifying to his halacha that the principle of Ein Kenyan Lenachri also applies to the produce, not just the land. And Rab Chaim says that that might be the more proper way to read this because the Ravid only makes this comment in Hilchos Kurim, where that was not made clear by the Rambam, as opposed to Hilchos Trumos, where it was, whereas according to the second approach, the Ravid should have disagreed in both places. So according to the first reading of the Ravid, there is no debate between the Rambam and the Ravid whether the issue of Yesh Kenyan Lenachri is going to affect the status of the land itself. According to this, the Ravid would agree with the Rambam's presentation in that regard. Now, in the third paragraph, Rab Chaim suggests that there's a totally different way to read the Ravid's comment. And this is according to the second approach, that the Ravid disagrees with the Rambam. But what the Ravid's disagreeing with is totally different. He's not disagreeing with whether Yesh Kinyan Lenochri Eretz Yisrael would remove the status of Eretz Yisrael from this land. He could accept that. 
he too agrees with the Rambam's presentation that if the non-Jew owned this land, then it would be removed from the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael and the inheritance of the Jewish people. But the Ravid's criticizing the Rambam because he holds that only an eternal acquisition of the land for all time could remove it from being part of the inheritance of the Jewish people. But that is not true when a non-Jew buys land because of the halacha of Yovel, that in the 50th year, the land goes back to the original owners. The Torah says, You cannot sell the land forever. So since the non-Jew is only buying the land temporarily until the next Yovel, the Ravid says that, that type of temporary acquisition could not remove the land from being part of the inheritance of the Jewish people and being part of Eretz Yisrael. So according to this new approach of Rav Chaim, that's the essence of the Ravid's criticism of the Rambam. Why is the Rambam saying that a non-Jew who buys land in Israel, that land doesn't lose the status of Eretz Yisrael based on the principle of Ein Kinyan L'Nachri Eretz Yisrael, the Ravid says there's a much simpler reason, which is this is only a temporary sale up until Yovel, and a sale like that doesn't have the ability to change the status of this land to Chutzla Aretz land. Now, Rab Chaim points out that if we think about this more carefully, it's circular. Because Yovel is Afkosa de Malka. Hashem takes it from the buyer and gives it back to the owner on the year of Yovel. So if Yovel would be canceled, then it would remain in the hands of the buyer. So the same thing, if we were to say that the non-Jew's acquisition is a full ownership of this land, so that would change the status to non-Eretz Yisrael land, and then Yovel would be canceled, so then it really would be the non-Jews for eternity. So we're using the concept of Yovel to explain why it doesn't become the non-Jews, and therefore Yovel continues to apply. So it's circular. But says Rab Chaim that we have to understand even more fundamentally, how does the whole concept of Yovel work that you cannot sell Eretz Yisrael for eternity? Does it mean that when you sold it, it was sold for all time, but then when Yovel comes, the halacha takes the land and gives it back to the owners? Or do we say that inherent in the sale is that the sale can only take effect if it's not going to violate the rules of Yovel? And even though, as we just explained, when Yovel comes, the halacha takes the land and gives it back to the owner. So it sounds like it's something new. It's not inherent in the sale. But still, says Rab Chaim, according to this approach, it would be that from the time of the sale, there was already the rule built in that at Yovel it's going to go back. And the proof for this second formulation is the halacha of steachuza, that you're allowed to redeem your field at any point during the Yovel cycle. And the evaluation for how much the seller has to pay the buyer is going to be dependent on how many years are left to Yovel. So you see that the entire time it's built in that this sale only takes effect up until the Yovel, such so that it actually has financial value that you could have evaluate how much money is left to this sale depending on how many years have passed and how many years are left until Yovel. So Rab Chaim says that this is proof for the second formulation that it's not just two unrelated things that first you sell a field and then later on at Yovel it gets given back to the seller but rather built into the original sale is this continuous 
countdown to Yovel when it's going to go back to the seller. So that's the meaning of the Pasuk of Aharetz Losimachel Etzmisos, that you can't sell the land forever. What it means is that in addition to the Halacha, that at Yovel, the land has to go back to the seller, in addition to that is a Halacha that built into the sale itself is that this sale cannot be forever. And Rab Chaim says that this formulation also seems to emerge from the Rambam in Hushmit of Yovel at the beginning of Parakyud Aleph. The Rambam says, Eretz Yisrael amischalekes l'shvatim. Eretz Yisrael, which was split up to the tribes, einanim keres l'tzmisus, it cannot be sold forever, like the Pasuk says. Ve'imachar l'tzmisus, if someone goes ahead and sells it forever, shneihem over in below sase, they both violated the Torah. And furthermore, it's not even effective, elatavzar hasod elabaleha Rather, the field does go back to the owners, the sellers at Yovel. So Rab Chaim points out that from the fact that the Rambam says that included in the Pasuk of Haaretz Lo Simachel that the land of Israel cannot be sold forever, included in that is a prohibition against selling the land forever, and that won't even be effective because Yovel will override that. So that indicates that a sale which is done in accordance with that Pasuk, they do follow the rules, would include that the sale is not forever, it's only until Yovel. So this indicates, like the formulation, that when you sell land in Eretz Yisrael, built into the sale itself is that it's only until Yovel. So now that we understand this, says Rab Chaim, that's exactly what the Ravid is saying. That if there were the possibility of a non-Jew buying Eretz Yisrael land forever, then it could be that that would remove the land from having the status of Eretz Yisrael. But that's an impossibility. Because of the concept of Yovel, so that precludes there being a sale which is forever. Every sale is inherently only temporary until Yovel. So when a non-Jew buys the land, that cannot change the status of this land and remove it from being Eretz Yisrael. And you don't need to use the Rambam's reasoning because of Ein Kinyan Lenachri Eretz Yisrael. There's a simpler reason that the whole sale to the non-Jew is only temporary. So that cannot change the status of the land. So that's why the Ravid concludes that the whole debate of Yesh Kinyon L'Nachri Barat Yisrael or not is only going to affect whether or not you have to take Truma and Meister and Bikurim from that produce, which would not require an eternal ownership of the non-Jew in order to remove the obligation of Truma and Meiser and Bikurim. So that's why it makes sense to discuss that issue. But the issue cannot be about whether or not the land loses its status, which would require eternal ownership of the non-Jew, which is impossible because of Yovel. Now, building on this approach, Rab Chaim adds a very brilliant step here, and that is that the Machlokas, the Rambam and the Raivid, regarding whether the non-Jews' temporary ownership is enough to derail the inheritance and the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, is l'shitasam of another Machlokas that they have. Because the Gemara says that in Yerusha Shnia, the second time the Jews captured Eretz Yisrael with Ezra in the days of the second Beis HaMikdash, they did not keep Yovel. And the Gemara in Erech in Beis explains because they did not have a majority of the Jewish people living in Israel at that time. And that's a prerequisite for the laws of Yovel to apply that a majority of the Jewish people in the world live in the land of Israel. 
So according to the Gemara, the key point is that most of the Jewish people did not live in Israel during the second Beis HaMikdash. Now the Rambam formulates this a little bit differently. In Hilchus Trumos Perak Aleph, Halacha Chavvav, the Rambam says that Truma nowadays, even in a place which Ezra captured, and even in Ezra's times himself, is not Deoraisa, it's only rabbinic. And the reason the Rambam explains that Truma in his times and in our times is not Deoraisa is She'en Lecha Truma Shel Torah Ela Be'eretz Yisrael Belvad Ubizman Shekol Yisrael Sham. Because there is no Deoraisa obligation of Truma only in Israel when most of the Jewish people live there. Because the Torah says when you will come, which means that you'll all come the same way it was the first time the Jewish people came with Yehoshua and the same way it's going to be in the future with Mashiach. But not the way it was the second time the Jewish people came up to Israel with Ezra. That only a few of them came and therefore there was no Deoraisa obligation of Truma. So the Rambam focuses on a different point than the Gemara. It's not about how many Jews lived in Israel during the second Beis HaMikdash, but it's that when they captured Israel during that period, it was with a minority of the Jewish people. There were not a majority of the Jews who came up to capture Israel. Now, Rab Chaim points out that the Pasuk of Kisavo, when the Torah says that when you will come, is not in the context of Trumos and Maestro. So the Rambam is using this as the proof that Truma doesn't apply to Oraisa unless most of the Jewish people come up, but that is a Pasuk which is said with regard to Shemitah and Yovel, not Truma. So the explanation for this must be based on Rashi and Ksubis and Dafchav Hay, who says that the Truma and Maiser depends on the counting of the Shemitah year. So there's a connection between Shemitah and Truma and Maiser. So that's why the Rambam is able to apply the Pasuk of Kisavo from Shemitah and Yovel to the topic of Truman Meiser, that Truman Meiser is only do Raisa if a majority of the Jewish people capture the land. Now, based on this, Rab Chaim says that it seems obvious that according to the Rambam, the criteria of Kisavo'u would have to apply to Shemitah and Yovel. Meaning, if you're learning from Shemitah and Yovel to Truma, then it must apply also to Shemitah and Yovel, which would mean that there is no obligation to follow the laws of Shemitah and Yovel unless a majority of the Jewish people captured the land in that period. So based on this, the Rambam would hold that there were actually two reasons why during the period of the second Beis HaMikdash, the laws of Yovel were not in effect. One is because a majority of the Jewish people didn't capture the land that time around. And the second is because a majority of the Jewish people didn't live on the land. Now, the Ravid disagrees with the Rambam's application of Kisavo to Truma and Meiser. He holds that it's a limited halacha that only applies to Chala. So if according to the Ravid, Kisavo doesn't apply to Truma and Meiser, according to Rab Chaim's calculation, it's also not going to apply to Shemitah and Yovel. So in the second Beis HaMikdash, there was only one reason why the laws of Shemitah and Yovel weren't in effect, and that is because a majority of the Jewish people didn't live on the land of 
Israel, but the fact that only a minority had captured the land was not relevant to the laws of Shemitah and Yovel. Now, Reb Chaim is, of course, the great conceptual thinker, and here he points out that there's a key conceptual distinction between the requirement that a majority of the Jews capture the land versus a majority of the Jews live on the land. The requirement that a majority of the Jews live on the land of Israel doesn't affect the land itself. It's a halacha within Yovel that unless a majority of the Jewish people live in Israel, then the laws of Yovel are not in effect. But that's very different from the requirement that a majority of the Jewish people capture the land of Israel, which is a requirement which affects the very sanctity of the land itself. If only a minority of the Jewish people capture the land of Israel, then the land itself is not sanctified with regard to the mitzvah of Yovel. And the reason for this distinction, Rab Chaim explains, is because with regard to the requirement that a majority of the Jews capture the land, that's something which depends on a particular moment in history when they capture Israel. Were there a majority or not of the Jewish people there? That's the way the Rambam that we read before, Kodesh, it, and the Gemara in Ksubis and Hey also says that Chala nowadays is only rabbinic because when Ezra went up to capture the land, he didn't have a majority of the Jewish people. So the factor of whether a majority of the Jews captured Israel is something which depends on a particular moment in time when they were capturing the land. As opposed to the requirement that a majority of the Jewish people live on the land of Israel. So that's dynamic. It changes depending on the moment. Each moment has to be evaluated whether or not a majority of the Jews live on the land. That's based on the Gemara in Erchin and Daf Yud Beis and Daf Lamed Beis, which states that when the two and a half tribes of Reuven and God and half of Menashe were exiled, so the Jews stopped keeping Yovel, because when it comes to Yovel, not only do you need a majority of the Jews living in Israel, but it also has to be an orderly process that they're comfortable, they're not in exile. Once two and a half tribes were exiled, so then Yovel did not apply. And when the two and a half tribes returned, so now things were back to the way they should have been, so then Yovel went back into effect. So you see that the criteria of who who's living on the land is not something which gets frozen at a particular moment, but it shifts depending on each year you have to reevaluate whether the majority of the Jewish people is living in the land. So based on this, says Rab Chaim, that's why there's a key distinction between these two criteria. When it comes to a majority of the Jewish people capturing the land, that's something which inherently relates to the capture and sanctification of Eretz Yisrael. So that's why if it's not done with the majority of the Jewish people, then the land itself is not sanctified for Yovel. As opposed to a majority of the Jews living in the land of Israel, that's unrelated to the capturing and sanctification of the land. So rather, like Rab Chaim formulated it, that's a prerequisite within the mitzvah of Yovel that that mitzvah does not take effect unless at that moment in time a majority of the Jews are living on the land. Now, having developed all this, Rab Chaim comes back to our machlokas between the Rambam and the Raivid. The Raivid holds that you don't need to say in Kinyan Lenachri Be'aretz Yisrael in order to say that the land retains its sanctity even while it's owned by a non-Jew because there's a simpler reason. The non-Jew is not able to buy the land forever. It's only a temporary sale up until Yovel. 
But the problem with the Raivid's approach is what about during the second Beis HaMikdash period when there was no Yovel? So at that point, a non-Jew who buys land was buying it forever. And according to the Raivid, that would remove it from being part of Eretz Yisrael if not for the Rambam's explanation of Ein Kinyan L'Nachri. So how does the Raivid's approach account for the period of the second Beis HaMikdash when there was no Yovel in effect? So the answer Rab Chaim explains is simple that even though practically Yovel was not being followed during the second Beis HaMikdash, but that doesn't change the inherent concept of Yovel, that land which is sold in Eretz Yisrael is only temporary, it's not an eternal sale. So that's what the Ravid would say, that even though practically there weren't a majority of the Jewish people living in Israel at the time, so practically they didn't follow the laws of Yovel, but the concept that land in Eretz Yisrael is only sold temporarily was still in effect. And that's why it's correct to say that when a non-Jew buys land, it doesn't change the status of that land. But, says Rab Chaim very brilliantly, this only works according to the Ravid's position that there was nothing inherently about Eretz Yisrael, the land itself, during the period of the second Beis HaMikdash, which made it that Yovel wasn't in effect. It was purely a prerequisite for the mitzvah of Yovel, which was missing. So that's why we could say that even though the prerequisite was missing, so practically Yovel wasn't in effect, but the essential concept of Yovel remained steady, that land in Eretz Yisrael is only sold temporarily. Whereas according to the Rambam, that there was another problem, that the majority of the Jews hadn't captured the land. So the land itself was missing the necessary Necessary sanctification for Yovel to be in effect. So then you can't say that this land was only sold temporarily because the land itself was not the kind of land that Yovel applies to. So the Rambam is unable to defend the Ravid's idea that land is only sold temporarily in Eretz Yisrael, even during the second Beis HaMikdash period, because according to the Rambam, the land was not sanctified at that time. So it was actually sold like any other land for all time. So that's why the Rambam doesn't adopt the Ravid's approach as to why a non-Jew's ownership doesn't change the status of the land because it's only temporary, because according to the Rambam, that wouldn't work during the period of the second Beis HaMikdash. You'd have to say the reason is because of Ein Kinyan L'Nachri Baretz Yisrael. That's why the Rambam is forced to say this approach, as opposed to the Ravid, who holds that there was nothing different about the land of Eretz Yisrael with regard to Yovel during the period of the second Beis HaMikdash. So he's able to defend the notion that even during that period when a non-Jew bought land, it was a temporary sale, even though practically it was not going to be returned at Yovel. So this is an incredibly brilliant equation from Rab Chaim, reading between the lines of different comments of the Rambam and the Ravid to show how the machlokas between the Rambam and the Ravid, why a non-Jew's ownership of the land of Israel doesn't change the status of that land, depends on their views regarding the issue of whether or not you require a majority of the Jewish people to have captured the land of Israel in order for Yovel to be in effect, and how that would have played out during the period of the second Beis HaMikdash. Now, in the last paragraph, Rab Chaim returns to the circular point that he had made before, that we say a non-Jew can't 
fully owned land in Eretz Yisrael to change the status of that land because it goes back at Yovel. But the reason the land goes back to the seller at Yovel is because the non-Jew isn't able to own land fully in Eretz Yisrael. So this seems to be circular reasoning. So Rab Chaim quotes a Yerushalmi which addresses this issue. It's in Demai in the fifth chapter. The Mishnah says, Ma'asrin Mishal Nochrial Shal Yisrael. You can take Miser from produce grown in a non Jew's field on produce grown in a Jew's field. Once the Jew owns the produce, so then it's all one big pile and you can take Miser from one batch on the other one. So the Yerushalmi comments that this Mishnah follows the position of Reb Meir that ain't Kenyan Lenochri Beretz Yisrael. That's why the produce grown in the non-Jews field is obligated in Miser, same as the produce grown in the Jews field. And that disagrees with Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon who hold Yesh Kenyan Lenochri Beretz Yisrael, that the non-Jew who owns land in Eretz Yisrael, that produce is not obligated in Miser. Then the Yerushalmi tries to bring a proof to Reb Meir because the Torah says that you cannot sell land in Eretz Yisrael forever. So land in Eretz Yisrael is only sold temporarily and that's why a non-Jew's ownership of the land does not exempt it from Miser. So the Yerushalmi itself mentions the idea that Rab Chaim attributes to the Ravid that since land is only sold temporarily in Eretz Yisrael, that's why a non-Jew's ownership doesn't exempt it from Miser. And then the Yerushalmi responds, no, in fact, that Pasuk would be a proof to Rabbi Shimon because the Torah said, that you shouldn't sell it forever. But if you did go ahead and sell it forever, then that would take effect. So the response back is just as you could sell a field forever and override the laws of Yovel, so too, once a non-Jew buys the field, it's now fully his and it's going to override the laws of Yovel. So that's why Yesh Kinyan Lenochri Baretz Yisrael. So this Yerushalmi seems to contradict Rab Chaim's whole approach throughout this piece. He's been suggesting throughout that since Yovel makes all sales in Eretz Yisrael temporary, that's why a non-Jew who buys land doesn't change the status. But the Yerushalmi holds that according to the position that a non-Jew could buy land in Eretz Yisrael, that would override Yovel and he would own it forever. So we're stuck. Why shouldn't that then change the status of the land of Israel and make it like Chutzlar? So Rab Chaim quotes an explanation of the Yerushalmi, which is going to fit in with his approach. This is from Rab Simcha Zelig, who was his closest friend from their Valozhin days. He was the longtime Dayan and the Posek in Brisk when Rab Chaim was the Rav there. And he's the only contemporary to be quoted in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi. So Rab Simcha Zelig explained the Yerushalmi a little bit differently. And that is that the Yerushalmi saying, if theoretically you could sell land forever in Eretz Yisrael, then it would be true that a non-Jew would fully own the land and then Yovel would no longer be applicable on that land. So it's a thought experiment. It's highlighting that the only reason why Yovel does apply to land which is purchased by a non-Jew is only because that land cannot be sold forever because of the laws of Yovel. But without the laws of Yovel making it a temporary sale, then it would fully belong to the non-Jew and Yovel would be suspended on that land. So the point of the thought experiment is that when it comes to Truman Meiser, where it's irrelevant whether the land is sold forever or not, whether the sale is temporary or forever has no bearing on the laws of Truman Meiser. So in that case, 
the ownership of the non-Jew is a full ownership and the produce is not obligated in Truma and Meiser. So we're deriving from the theoretical idea that an eternal sale could suspend Yovel on the non-Jew's land. We're deriving from there to Truma and Meiser that any purchase of the non-Jew is going to suspend Truma and Meiser from that produce. But practically, with regard to Yovel, you cannot have an eternal sale. So Yovel is always going to apply even to land purchased by a non-Jew. And that would fit in with Rab Chaim's whole approach that since the Yovel is not suspended, that's why the land does not lose its status as being part of Eretz Yisrael, even though it's purchased by a non-Jew because it's only a temporary purchase. So the way Reb Simchazelig slightly reinterpreted this Yerushalmi fits in with Rab Chaim's whole approach throughout this piece. And Rab Chaim concludes, he brings proof to Rab Simchazelig's explanation of the Yerushalmi from the Gemara and Gi'in that we discussed earlier, where the Gemara said that whether you hold Ein Kenyan L'Nachri Baratz Yisrael or Yesh Kenyan L'Nachri Baratz Yisrael, everyone agrees that with regard to the non-Jew owning the land, there are some limitations on digging it and using it however he wants. Either he can affect the sanctity of the land or he doesn't own the land financially to use it however he wants. Says Rab Chaim, if there are some limitations on the non-Jew's ownership of the land, then it seems obvious that he can't suspend the laws of Yovel on his land. Because if he doesn't even own it fully to use it however he wants, then certainly his ownership is not strong enough to get rid of the obligation of Yovel on this land. And even furthermore, says Rab Chaim, it seems that the basis of the halacha that he can't use the land however he wants is the law of Yovel because it's only a temporary sale. Meaning, if not for Yovel, it would be an eternal sale to the non-Jew and he should be able to use it however he wants. So the very basis of the idea in the Gemara and Gittin that the non-Jew cannot use the land however he wants, there's some limitations on his ownership, is based on the idea of Yovel that this land was only temporarily sold to him. So according to that, in our Gemara in the Bavli and Gittin, it's clear that when a non-Jew purchases his land in Israel, the laws of Yovel still apply. So the simple reading of the Yerushalmi that the law of Yovel no longer applies to a non-Jews field would go against our Gemara. So Rab Chaim says that it's better to read it like Rab Simchazelig, that it's just a thought experiment to show what would be the halacha regarding Truma, but practically the Yerushalmi also agrees that the law of Yovel does apply even to a non-Jew's field, and it doesn't disagree with the Bavli on that. So this is Rab Chaim's piece. It centers on three different explanations of the Ravid's very brief comment with regard to the Rambam's presentation of the halachas of Ein Kinyan L'Nachri Be'eretz Yisrael, and the produce is still obligated in Truma and Meiser and Bikurim. Approach number one is very practical, that the Ravid is just pointing out what the Rambam himself agrees with elsewhere, that the halacha of Ein Kinyan L'Nachri also applies to the produce, not just to the land. The second approach is that the Ravid is disagreeing with the Rambam, and they have a machlokis about whether or not the issue of Yesh Kinyan L'Nachri Be'eretz Yisrael would affect the status of the land? Would it transform the land into land of Chutz La'aretz? And the Ravid very strongly disagrees with that idea, and Rab Chaim analyzes that. And the third approach is, again, that the Ravid is disagreeing with the Rambam, but on a totally different idea. He accepts the idea of the second approach, 
that a non-Jew's ownership of Eretz Yisrael would change the land into Chutzla Eretz land, but the Raivet holds that that's not going to happen because of the concept of Yovel, which makes all sales of land in Eretz Yisrael only temporary. And this then leads to an analysis of why Yovel wasn't in effect during the second Beis HaMikdash period, and whether or not you require a majority of the Jewish people to capture the land of Israel for Yovel, and that also leads to a discussion about whether Yovel would apply to the field bought by a non-Jew. DoorDash helps you make cash fast. All you need is your bike and a smartphone. The sign-up process is super quick and easy. Now you get to choose your own hours and be your own boss. And best of all, you get to keep 100% of your tips. Download the DoorDash driver app today to get started.